I think more and more personally about my attitude when God's word is opened. Um, and a thought popped into my head this morning from scripture. Um, does anybody remember the, the one good thing that Eli taught Samuel? It's, it's unfair of me to ask because I don't know that I would answer it if I was sitting out there. He told, it had been a, to, to set the stage, um, Hannah was one of many women whose womb was closed for a specific birth. And that birth was Samuel, L being God. And she promised him to the Lord all his life, which we do in baby dedications today. But she was serious. She took this three-year-old boy, took him to the temple, and said, he's yours. And Samuel never came home. And as probably about the age of my grandson, Jason, um, the corruption in Israel during the times of the judges, um, you read at the end of the book of Judges, everyone did what they thought was right. That sounds like America. But that was Israel during the time of the judges. So God was speaking, but nobody was listening. So God is speaking, and this little boy says, what? What did you say, master? And finally, the third time, Eli says, Samuel, the next time this happens, say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And I was thinking this morning that that's what I need to do when I open the Bible. So I want to begin with that prayer and join me in that prayer, if that is you. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. In Jesus' name, amen. So we come to 1 John chapter 2. We're going to begin in verse 18 today. It's this letter of sanctification, this letter of how can you know you're going to heaven? John will tell you. How can you know what to do? John will tell you. Um, how can you overcome? John will tell you. How can you learn to love one another and the priority that is placed on that? John will tell you. So we begin in verse 18 of 1 John chapter 2, where John writes, Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. Even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us, for if they had belonged to us, they would, not, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. So one of the things that, that I believe is it, that this book that is alive, that we would all agree speaks into 2023, even though it was completed at the end of the first century. And I think that like when people talk about reading the Bible chronologically, I'm not opposed to that. But I fully understand at the same time why the Bible is put together the way it is and why certain authors wrote at certain times. And I think it is, it is doubly true that in 2023, the Bible is speaking to us. 
So speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So when John is talking about this is the last hour, John is being moved by the Holy Spirit. John is thinking personally, you know what? It's been three decades since Paul and Peter and the men that I served with when he left have been gone. So he may have been thinking to himself, that this is the last hour. God is writing down that this is the last hour. We know that John says that the last hour from the book of Daniel and, and, and from what Paul talks about in 2 Thessalonians brings on the Antichrist post-rapture. So he's saying in the last hour, we know that we're close to that and the Antichrist is coming, but he says even now many Antichrists have come so I don't think John realizes what we can probably realize today, that John was writing this for you and me. That the principles and the things that he teaches in this chapter are for everyone that John writes to. They weren't for Paul specifically, because Paul's been in heaven for about 33 years. But it goes forward, as John is the last author in Scripture, it's not a coincidence that he writes the last things in God's plan. So turn to um, Revelation chapter 2. So something that I'm not dogmatic about, meaning you have to believe this too, but one of the things that I believe is that the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation are real churches in real time with the Apostle John. Just a few years after he writes 1 John, he writes the book of Revelation. I also believe that they are prophetically representative of time periods. Um, and there are many scholars that see that, that these seven letters progress to the point where the seventh letter speaks to the end age of the church. So in chapter 2, we see um, in this letter to Smyrna, one of the first churches experiencing the heavy persecution of the year, early years of the church, in verses 9 and 10, Jesus says to them, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. So very early on, in the time that John is living, a church is born in Smyrna. And as John writes the book of Revelation, he writes to a heavily persecuted church. Um, when the gospel went to Asia, and Antipas is the first person saved, and it spreads out into these churches, um, Smyrna is experiencing heavy, heavy persecution. Satan is well aware of that the gospel is funneling out into the world and it's going through this place that is modern-day Turkey, which is totally ruled by Islam today, and he tells these people, hang in there. If it's going to cost you your life, hang in there. 
and he promises them in this letter that he will keep them from the hour of trial. Go to Revelation chapter 3 as we see the letter to the last church. He tells Smyrna, you feel poor, you feel destitute, but you are rich, he tells them in the early years in Smyrna. In Laodicea, which I believe represents, among other things, the time that we are living in in 2023. And I think these are words that Christ would say to his church today, in large part. In chapter 3 and verse 15, he says, I know your deeds, that you are neither hot, cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth, and I do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. So as he speaks to a church that I believe represents early days in the church, he says, hang in there. Persecution is on you. It's coming, it's going to get harder, but stay faithful. You feel poor, you feel destitute, you feel alone, but you're not. You're rich. And he says to the church in the last days, you say, we've got wealth, we've got a nice building, we've got all these things, we are good. He says, no, you're not. You're poor, blind, wretched, and naked, and I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. And I think he's probably even speaking to the rapture that this is enough. I've asked you to represent me. That time has come to an end. You see there in your notes as Paul writes about time, and he would have written this about 33 years before 1 John, do this understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake from your slumber because our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. And it's obviously nearer in 1 John. As we go back to 1 John, we take a little bit more of a look at that first verse that we looked at, verse 18. Dear children, this is the last hour, and you have heard that the Antichrist is coming. Even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know that it is the last hour. So many more antichrists have come since John wrote that, and he is saying that that's the testimony of the last hour. So Paul and Jude and Peter all agree that when the church becomes about the church and not about Christ, like he says to Ephesus, you're still working hard, you're still going to church, you're still doing what you did, but your reason for doing it has changed. John says that's evidence of the last hour. When it becomes about an organization and not about a person, that is the sign of the church. It is the sign of the end of the church. Turn to John chapter 6. John says, they went out from us, and their going out from us proved that they were not really with us. So this has always been the case in John's life and in people's life relating to Jesus. We're going back in John 6, um, 60 years before 1 John is written, and we're going to pick it up 
in verse 60, after Jesus, when we did the study of Jesus saying, I am, he says it five times in this chapter, ego eimi, in other words, I'm the one in the bush who spoke to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, and I have come down from heaven as the bread of life, here I am. And the, the murmuring in this probably more than a hundred disciples is like, is he, saying, is, he, is he trying to tell us that he's God? That he's the Almighty? That he's ego a me? Is he really telling us that he's the one that sent Moses to Egypt to deliver Israel? So we pick it up in verse 60. On hearing it, many of the disciples said, this is a hard teaching, who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? Which would happen about a year after this moment. The Spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you they are full of the Spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. See, the thing that Jesus could never lay down was his omniscience. So there's a Gideon effect that's going to happen in a major way that probably greatly discouraged Peter, Andrew, James, and John. This is, Jesus has just fed the 5,000. Jesus has just walked on water. Jesus has just calmed the seas. And now he is saying in this group of disciples, not all of which that were on that boat, not all of which that saw the 5,000, but they're following him. He's saying to them, now I want you to understand, I am God. What? What is he talking about? This is a hard teaching. How can we keep following him if he claims that he is God? And he's explaining this, and Peter, Andrew, James, and John are probably hearing the whispering that's going on in verse 64, yet there are some of you who do not believe. He knows in this crowd about Judas, and he knows Judas isn't alone. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father enabled them. We talked about this Wednesday night. Back in verse 44 of this chapter, he says, no one comes to me unless the Father draws them. We talked about God calls us. We don't call him, we repent. And when we repent, even before the creation of the world, we are foreknown. And because we are foreknown, we are predestined. And because we are predestined, we are called. And because we are called, we are justified. And because we are justified, we are glorified. And Jesus is explaining here that that starts with repentance and my Father enables you to come to me, to be with me forever. And he's explaining to this group of professing disciples, I'm the one he brings you to. And he says, it says here that John writes, John is the explainer, he says, he knew this crowd. He knew that there are only 11 in this maybe 100 or so people 
that are really followers. So when Gideon went into the Midianite camp, the, the professors were separated from the believers. And when Jesus is approaching the last year before the cross, he needs the professors to separate from the believers. So reading on verse 65, he went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father enabled them. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. The crowd was already separated in Christ's mind. Part of what needed to happen is they had to be separated in Peter's mind and in John's mind. That not everybody who says, we follow Christ, is a Christ follower. John says, you know, this is the last hour and the Antichrist is coming, but in fact, many Antichrists have already come and they left us. And when they left us, they proved that they were not really with us. They weren't scared Christians. They were Antichrists. They were in until being in meant everything. And they faded away. So turn back to 1 John chapter 1. This is a principle that was true for Gideon. It was true in John chapter 6. But John is explaining in this chapter, it's always been and it always will be true. So if you look down, for example, at verse 26, he says... I am writing these things to you so that those who are trying to, so I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. So John keeps putting these markers in. In chapter 1, verses 8 through 10, and verse 8 and verse 9, he says, if you're saying I'm the person who doesn't have a problem with sin, he says two things. Verse 8, you're a liar. The truth is not in you. Verse 10, you're calling God a liar. He has a marker at the beginning of this chapter. I'm writing these things to you so that you will not sin. And he writes a marker in verse 26. He's, I'm explaining to you about what the church really is in God's eyes. And I'm warning you to watch out for those who will lead you astray. Inevitably in my life, when someone walks away from the church, they will try to take someone with them. Inevitably, whenever there's a faction in a church that is whispering, they are trying to gather people into that group with them. John is saying, I want you to cling to the truth and nothing else, and he will explain that throughout this chapter. So we pick it up in verse 20. But you, if you're not an antichrist, if you're not in it for the short haul, but you have the anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. So he tells the woman at the well in John chapter 4, there's a day coming 
when people will worship in spirit and truth. He tells them in John chapter 7, he says, To any of you who believe in me, streams of living water will flow from within you. By this, John says in chapter 7, he meant the Holy Spirit who would be given to those who would follow him. In John chapter 14, on the night that he is betrayed, he says to his disciples, I'm going to send you another one, an advocate, a counselor, a teacher, and he has been with you this whole time, but then he will be in you. He says on the night that he ascends to heaven in Luke, he says, he says, repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in my name to all the nations beginning in, in Jerusalem. And then he says to them, I'm going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. And he says the same thing to them in Acts chapter 1 is actually the same moment in time. John is saying, because you have repented, you have the anointing from the Holy One. This is a Trinitarian verse. Jesus says, and Paul says of Christ in his letters, that Christ sent the Holy Spirit. And in another letter he will say, the Father sent the Holy Spirit. So this is a Trinity verse that John is saying that instead of an Antichrist, if you're a Christ follower, you have the Trinity with you. So the Spirit indwells you. He is the resident in a human being. Christ walks with you, lives with you, empowers you, speaks to you through the Holy Spirit. And then in Ephesians chapter 4 and about verse 6, the Father is over all, through all, and in all. Only the anointed ones. And John is saying, you have the power of heaven with you. You will be discouraged when someone walks away. You will not have known that they were not really with you, but you have the power to continue to follow Christ. And he is trying to encourage them, and he is trying to encourage us. Verse 21, he says, let's see, verse 21, I was in the wrong chapter. Verse 21, I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Christ, Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. So he is talking about this positive approach that we take the word of God, we take captive every thought. Whatever he says is true is not only true, but it's the only truth. So John is saying, I'm writing to this not because you don't know the truth and I'm informing you. I'm writing you because you do know the truth, because you've heard the truth, because you have the anointing based on your response to the truth. And there is no lie in the truth. So how do we deny that Jesus is the Christ? You say, well, I've, I would say to you that I've never told anyone that Jesus wasn't the Christ. And I would say to you, I've probably also denied him many times. And he's warning them not to do that. How do we deny Christ? Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10 about verses 32 and 33, 
He says, whoever acknowledges me before people, I will acknowledge before my Father. And whoever denies me before people, I will deny before the angels in heaven. Have you ever done that? How do you do that? Well, there's an opportunity. Christ needs to be brought into it, and I don't bring him in. And ultimately, if that's who I am, I'm an antichrist. That's why Paul explains that as believers, we're capable of sin, but if it's my identity that I deny Christ, then John says, in fact, I'm an antichrist. And that I was like John chapter 6. I was in the crowd. Nobody recognized me as different. But when push came to shove, I walked away. Um, turn to 1 John chapter 2 back earlier in the chapter. I've got a statement that to these verses in your notes there. Decide with me if this is biblically accurate. If the truth doesn't lead you, it won't save you. Does that make sense? Is that biblically accurate? In other words, if, if I believe for salvation, but I don't believe to live for him, I will have neither. So, he has done everything to save me. It is all of his power, all of his grace, all of his sacrifice. And he asks me two words, follow me. That's all I really need to know. If I follow him, then I have a savior. I have a guide. I have a Lord. I have an instructor. In chapter 2, verses 3 through 6, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. So these verses are familiar. We just looked at them. So just listen. Um, speak, Lord, to me through these verses. Not my commentary on them, but what John is teaching us. Drop down to verses 9 and 10 in chapter 2. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light and... There is nothing in them to make them stumble. If that describes me, I am his. Look at chapter 3 and verse 10. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. So John is, among many other things, it's the one another book. So the evidence on earth of me and God is my love for you. And John is as blunt and clear and as bold as he can be. If you're a love one another person, if that's what fills your calendar, you're his. 
It's proof. It is the testimony that God is concerned with. If I claim to be his and my life is not filled with love for one another, then John says you're a liar. It's not true. And it's important for John to speak this into the church because I don't think that that's familiar today. I think that people can lay their head on their pillow believing I am a Christian. I am a Christ follower. I love the Lord and he loves me and that their life is filled with me. And John says, that can't be. Because if your life is filled with loving others, that's the only proof that we have. If you sacrifice your life for others, then John says, that's how you know. That's how you gnosko. You're sure. You've experienced it. You feel it genuinely because you genuinely love others. Look at verses 23 and 24 in chapter 3. We just read in chapter 2 and verse 3, we know we're His because we obey His commands. And this is His command, to believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as He commanded us. The one who keeps God's commands lives in Him and He in them. And this is how we know that He lives in us. We know it by the Spirit He gives us. So how can the Spirit speak to me? He can say to me, as only He can, you're His. How does He do that? I take His sword, I take it in my life, I do what it says, and it leads me in obedience that maybe I didn't know when I came to know Christ. Maybe I didn't know in the church that I happened to be in. Maybe I learned it when I stumbled on 1 John chapter 2 that the actual visible evidence that I belong to Christ is the love that I express sacrificially to the others in my family of believers. That's the proof. That's how I can know. God knows, Jesus knows immediately. We just read in John chapter 6. He already knew who would believe in him and who wouldn't. He knows in the second. He knows when we are conceived in the womb that the day that we choose to make him Lord is genuine or it's not. We don't know it then. We know it when we love him by loving others. It is that practical. It is that straightforward. Look at chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. No one has ever seen God. I love you, Lord. That's what we should do. But I can't give him a hug. I can't, I can't express directly, physically something to him. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another... God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us his spirit. I can't see the spirit. I can't see the father. I can't see the son. I can see you. You can see me. 
And if I love you, that's his way of me saying, I love you. Because I can't see him. I can't bring him a sacrifice. But I can be a living sacrifice by loving you. And if I do that, the spirit who he gives us says to me, you're his. So, question. Can other spirits say you're his if you profess, but you don't obey? Absolutely they can. David Jeremiah, I've heard him say multiple times, if somebody says, the spirit led me to do this, and he said, I pause and I gently say, it may have been, but it wasn't the Holy Spirit. How do you know that? Because what you said disagrees with God's word. So when I love one another, which is the message of the entire New Testament, the Spirit himself confirms and affirms in my soul that I am his. Look at verse 20 and 21 of chapter 4. Whoever claims to love God and yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. And that makes sense then that if reconciliation doesn't happen, then reconciliation, John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10, doesn't happen either. So fellowship, one another, if I'm not right with you, I'm not right with him. If I love most of you and all of him, he says, you're not mine. If I love all of you, all the time, imperfectly, flaws, warts, and all, in me, but I love you all the time. His spirit testifies with my spirit. You're his. You know. I've showed you. Go back to chapter 2. Verse 25. Verse 24, sorry. As for you... See that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. John and Jesus spent a lot of time explaining what that means, so we'll look at some of it. If it does, you also will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he promised us, eternal life. Those are gospel verses. If what you hear stays... If what he says, you do, eternal life. Eternal life. We have reduced salvation and Christendom to praying a prayer, believing that it's true, 
John is saying all throughout this letter. If his commands are your life, if loving one another is how you fill your calendar, if the things that he says to do are the things that you choose to do, you know that you are his. If you profess that it's true and you don't do those things, then you are not his. So in your notes there, turn to Matthew chapter 24. He is speaking about the last days and he is speaking into the tribulation, but he is speaking the same principles that John is speaking. He is saying the exact same things that he said to Smyrna in Revelation chapter 2, a church that is pre-rapture church. So in Matthew chapter 24, verses 12 and 13, Jesus says, Because of the increase of wickedness, how many of you know that that's 2023? The love of most will grow cold. So Jesus says through John to Ephesus, you're still doing, but it's not for him. It's not agape, it's phileo. We're brothers, we're, we get along, we have a social connection, but it's not about Christ. Jesus says the more wickedness increases. I could not possibly have predicted when I was 30 years old the wickedness that would be in the world when I am 61. You could not have imagined the things that happen in America today. That it is legal on both of our coasts to take an 11-year-old girl into a surgical room and make her into a boy without her parents knowing. That's unimaginable 30 years ago. In California, a judge does not legally have to prosecute a pedophile. That's America. Jesus says because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. Reading on verse 13. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. That sounds familiar. That's what John just said. If he remains in you, what he says, what he commands, stays eternal life. That's what he says in 1 John. Turn to John chapter 15 where he says the same thing about remaining in verses 9 through 11. John 15, verses 9 through 11. He says, As the Father has loved me, Agapau, so I have loved you. 1 John 3, 16. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. John and Jesus are both saying that if this remains, if you go from loving Jim and what Jim wants to loving one another, as your form of loving God, 
then eternal life. Then all he has is yours. Then in this current life, he will take his joy and he will put it in you and make your joy complete. So he has promises for now and promises for the future. So in John chapter 8, there are many people believing we don't believe in him and there are many people believing that we do believe in him. And Jesus says to the crowd that says, we do believe in you. He says, if you hold to my teachings, then you will truly be my disciple. Everyone that chose that was in John chapter 6, someone who stayed. He says, if you hold to my teaching, if you do what I say, if you keep my commands, what's your main command, Lord? Love one another just as I have loved you. Wow. Can I get better at that? Yes. Can I grow in that? Yes. Can I choose something else? No. So, if you remain eternal life, John chapter 8, if you hold to my teaching, you will truly be my disciples, and this is for now. You will know, Gnosko, the truth, and the truth will what? Set you free. We live in a time where Christians look like the world and the world looks like Christians because Christians are facing the same levels of stress the same way and the same trials the same way because they have grown up in a time where if you believe the truth, you're a Christian. And Jesus says, if you actually do what I say, I'll put my joy in you, I'll put my peace in you, I will set you free. And guess what? People around you will say, what is it? What's the deal? You're in this hospital bed telling me about joy. That makes no sense. Let me tell you about a person. Let me tell you about an individual who will give you everything, share with you everything. And the joy that is here can be yours. Um, Turn to Romans chapter 2, where Paul is theologically explaining what John is talking about. That it really is a path that we choose. It's a life that we choose. And it's not a moment that we choose. So in that moment that we choose, we are born again. Jesus, as it says in John chapter 2, for example, it says, many people put their trust in Jesus. Next verse says, but he didn't put his trust in them because he knew what was in each person's heart. So he knows what we don't know. We're in a crowd where everyone loves Jesus. Jesus says in John chapter 2 and John chapter 8 and in John chapter 6, I know who really loves me. Well, we know that you know that, Jesus, because you're God. How can I know that? Do they love one another just like I loved them? Do you love one another just like I loved you? So in Romans chapter 2, talking about conversion and leading to eternal life in verse 4. Or do you show 
contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance, to turn from a life of Jim to a life of Christ. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will pay back each person according to what they have done to those who by persistence stay, remain, obey, just like he did, John 15, 10. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life, 1 John 2. But for those who are self-seeking, I love you, Lord, I want to be saved, I believe in you, I prayed the prayer, but I, I really have things. Um, one man in the Bible says, I have to bury my father. Another man says, I, have, I just purchased some land, I need to deal with that. I've got things in my world, Lord, that when cleared up, I'm all yours. Jesus says to them, you stay here. Don't come with me. If the time comes when you want to come with me, you're invited. You're welcome. So Paul is explaining, verse 8, but for those who are self-seeking, which we all are naturally, we don't have to attempt that, and who reject the truth, John is saying in 1 John 2, I'm not writing you because you don't know the truth. You do know it. So Paul says, who reject the truth, 2 Thessalonians 2.10, that's the only reason a person will be in hell. And follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, for God does not show favoritism. Go back to 1 John it is a life of choices that changes. My reason on the day that I repent becomes Christ. What I do from now on, how I do it, where I'll learn to do it, how will I apply myself to doing it, changes. A lot of room to grow? Absolutely. Obedience from the start? Absolutely. Um, and we grow and we become mature and we go through trials and we learn more scripture to apply, but the obedience is demanded from the beginning. So we go back to verse 26. John says, I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. So he acknowledges in this letter, he's just been abducted, he's on Patmos, he's probably writing back to Ephesus and to the churches in that area, and he's realizing that when I was there, this is true. He says in the opening verses today that we had people go out from us, meaning John is a part of where this has happened. So it happened in Ephesus, it happened back in John chapter 6, um, when Jesus had walked on water, and it's happening now, and John is saying, there are people in your churches who are going to try to lead you astray. So Paul says in Acts chapter 20 that savage wolves come, 
And then he explains where they come from, inside. They come from inside. And it's a subtle thing. It's, yeah, I know we need to follow Christ, but um, he also wants us to have leisure time too, and he wants us to do things that make us happy too. And God wants you to have the highest level of living on earth without your reason ever changing. So he says, I'll put my joy in you. We just read a verse earlier. I'll give you my peace. I will give you life to the full. When is that? Right now. What do I need to do to get it? Love one another just like I loved you. And it's yours. So John is saying, verse 26, I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing you received from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. In other words, what he is saying here is that God has given you his Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians, in fact, let's look there briefly. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 to understand what, what John is saying. Are teachers important? Yes. But understand what John is saying. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul is the theological explainer as to the role of the Holy Spirit in an anointed person, an indwelt by the Holy Spirit person. So we do need teachers. I disagree with people who believe, I have the Holy Spirit, so I will open my Bible to any page and I will tell you what that verse means. That's not how the Holy Spirit works. Paul says in Hebrews 5.14, the Holy Spirit works by constant training, continuously studying, 2 Timothy 2.15. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, we pick it up, verse 6, we do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age. We don't need to learn, John is saying, from wise people and rulers in this age. Verse 7, no, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God has destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood. If they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. These are the things God has revealed to us by his spirit. The spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, we know in the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. What we have received is not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit explaining spiritual realities and spiritual thoughts, spiritual words. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. 
The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, but, this, the, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. For who has known the mind of the Lord as to instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. That's what John is teaching us. He's not saying you don't need to study. He's not saying you don't need teachers in the church. He's saying if someone comes with a new idea, you don't need it. If someone says, yes, God expects that of us, but we could also incorporate this. John says you don't need that. Because Satan will not come, Paul says, as a word, going to stop doing church. That's not Satan. Satan will say, you know, we could have a little bit less Bible study and a little bit more fun. We should love each other. That's love too. And that's a subtle thing, which, by the way, I'll be, give us an honest thing. We should have more fun. That's not a bad goal. But what I'm saying is that John is explaining to us in 1 John, I'm not saying this because you don't have the truth, I'm saying because you do. So don't form ideas somewhere else. You don't need that, John says. John says those people, without maybe even realizing it, are antichrist. Um, turn back to 1 John chapter 2. You've heard Paul and Jesus and John all say this morning what I have in your notes there. A simple statement, Christ, a Christ follower does what is right. That's what we will be judged by, what we do, not by what we think, not what we believe is true, but we will be judged by what we do. Verse 28 John writes, and now, dear children, continue in him. So we've heard stay, we've heard remain, and now he says continue in him. So that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. Christ followers do what is right. So we're not God and we're not perfect, but we can read what is right and we can do it. The power won't be ours. The instruction won't be ours, but both are given to us. We can choose the right thing in each situation because that's his plan for us. That's his demonstration to the world. This is his message of the gospel in the last verse of this chapter. We know that the person who does right is from him. And you say, I do right in a lot of areas, but the people in my church, ugh. That's primary. God has called me to love you and your design is my equipping. The challenges I have to love you and the challenges that you have to love me are exactly what he saw before the creation of the world. 
So in 1 Corinthians 12, 18, Paul says, the arrangement in the church was decided by him. Well, we've seen some of that arrangement in John's letter today. There's people in the arrangement that are trying to lead you astray. There's people in Tina's reading in the church that are weak. Jude says, be merciful to them. Come alongside them. Encourage them and challenge them in a way that they receive them both as encouragement. And say, he's worthy. It is worth my while to follow him. And he tells me to follow him by spurring you on towards love and good works. So here I am. Do the same for me. Turn to chapter 4 in closing. Verse 12, we will just read these verses. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us his spirit and we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. No one who fears has been made perfect in love. Lord, we're weak and we're human beings and, and fear knocks at our door at all levels of maturity. So we need to speak those words when fear knocks, I'm a follower of Christ. His spirit lives in me. My confidence comes from loving one another and the, the response he gives me when I do. Help us to do that together so that as we approach the rapture, we approach it with confidence. In Jesus' name, amen.